Welcome to TYT's The Conversation. I am Maitha Alhassan. Today, I have some powerful and moving guests, and we're just going to get right on to it. I wanted to start today with a conversation around what's happening in Lebanon and how folks can be involved and learn a little bit more about the crisis. So before we begin, I'm gonna introduce our very special guest, Lebanese Canadian slow fashion climate justice activist who's a co-founder of Slow Factory. We can talk a little bit about that more later. We have to have you on for something to do with climate justice at some other point because we do that on TYT. We have big conversations around that. But today you're here because we are gonna talk about Lebanon. This is your home, this is your country. You wrote a powerful article on Vogue just a day after the explosion. I don't know how you were able to do that. Um, the explosion that happened in Beirut uh, with 2,700 tons of aluminum nitrate that devastated the city. But it's not just only about the explosion. There's a certain context that the explosion happened within that set off decades of mismanagement, of corruption, of so much crisis. So before we get into that, I want to share that context and. I wanna throw to your article from Vogue a couple of quotes that I think are really helpful for people to be able to understand what's happening. So I'm just gonna read from them. Before the disaster, Lebanese people were already struggling to make ends meet during the COVID-19 pandemic. Against the backdrop of long-standing political unrest, an unprecedented economic crisis and famine with a corrupt political elite, high rates of unemployment and inadequate access to vital resources, including electricity, water, and waste management. The price of food, fuel, and basic necessities have skyrocketed. According to Carnegie Middle East Center, one in three Lebanese people have reportedly lost their jobs. The World Bank has estimated that almost 22% of Lebanese live below the extreme poverty line, while thousands have been going hungry. Inflation reached almost 90% in June. 2020, while the price of basic goods increased by around 55% in May. So this is what's happening, a little bit of what's happening. But catch readers up to speed, I'm sorry, catch viewers up to speed with the historical, political, economic, and social antecedents that have coalesced to produce this catastrophe, this explosion at the port that just happened. Absolutely. First, thank you so much, Mesa, for having me. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here to support Lebanon and to be uh, the voice of uh, of what's going on right now. Uh, as you said, Lebanon was fighting political unrest, a famine, a pandemic, an unprecedented economic crisis, and now a deadly explosion. In October of 2019, a revolution started. What we refer to as Thaura, triggered by a corrupt political system, dysfunctional national institutions constant electoral fraud, absence of basic services like electricity, clean drinking water. And as you said in my article, waste management on top of high unemployment rates. Since October, the currency has plummeted as we can say, as we can read, sorry, in my article, sending the country into a total economic collapse. But this was also part of the international 
on non-support basically. On August 4th of 2020, a bomb exploded at the port, destroying Beirut's most active and creative neighborhoods. Who was who was to blame? And how would the public react after this uh, this explosion when the Lebanon was already? Uh, Supporting and, and handling so much trauma, so many crises. Every single hand drew the public back to the corrupt government in a criminal act of negligence. And we can go into, into that when you're ready. Yeah, I do want to pull back a little bit and connect people to your relationship with Lebanon. You start out this article talking about the message that you received from your sister back home. So I just wanted you to speak about that. Definitely. So I am Lebanese. I live in New York. Uh, I have my entire family living in Lebanon, like most of us uh, in the expat community. Uh, we are, you know, one of the biggest diaspora in the world because we live in a country that's almost inhabitable, from climate crises to uh, wildfires to the economic crisis. Our family members, our communities, they rely on us for so many things. Um, and our direct family rely, rely on us for uh, for safety, for economic safety and all sorts of things. So when you get those texts from your families, your heart stops and you never know what's going on. And sometimes you call them and they don't answer and you constantly live in this, uh, this, this fear that something may, might have happened. But whatever can happen, we never expected such a thing to happen in August. Yeah, yeah, your family home was destroyed along with so many other homes. About 5,000 plus people have been injured. I don't know what the latest count is, over 100 have passed away and people remain missing. I, what I wanna know more about, which in your article was fascinating to me, actually in our conversation, which was what is um, the banking crisis? That happened. What is the reason for this economic collapse that Lebanon is experiencing that inspired a Thawra revolution back in October? So again, I am not a political analyst, but what I can tell you is what the public has been saying, what the people on the streets have been saying. The, there is a big economic crisis due to the fact that there is uh, there are sanctions on Lebanon at the moment, and these sanctions are controlled by the uh, uh, World Bank. Not only that, we also have a corrupt political elite, uh, warlords, if you may, that have taken money from the public and that continue to. Uh, you know, use the money from the, 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 the banks, from the general public to their own advantage. Um, you know, our government is sectarian, filled with corruption and nepotism. And Lebanon, uh, uh, regarding the bank secrecy of Lebanon, this means that no one is obligated to show their bank transactions. This has it's enabled- crazy. Which is crazy, exactly, as you say. This has enabled so much money laundering and fraud and stealing people's savings, money in US dollars to pay their own corrupt debt. And given that Lebanon imports almost 85% of what we consume, all of our dollars are spent abroad, leaving the country with close to no dollars and plummeting our currency, which was previously pegged to the US dollar. Um, it's it's unbelievable to think about the deep levels of financial corruption by the political class. And then the state that they were left in because of being colonized for decades. You said this in your article as well, which is that Lebanon's not able to sustain itself. And that port itself was where people received imported food goods. And they're currently on the edge of a famine, not just an economic collapse. So what 
is happening now? How are people able to survive? So first, everyone whose home and businesses was within kilometers of this blast. We have friends and relatives who, you know, had stitches from glass flying in their faces, broken bones, and worse. You know, Beirut. What was hit of Beirut is what has is basically the most vibrant communities, businesses. Um, you know, uh, artist districts, um, you know, creative districts, historical districts, um, you know, things that are uh, archaeological, historical. It's, uh, I have only the French word in mind, but it's the patrimoine. It's basically what belongs to our culture. Beirut is an ancient city. It has, you know, thousands of years of history. And, uh, and as you said, we also have thousands of years of colonialism behind us. Uh, from every single nation and the port of Beirut is the port where we uh, rely on for over 60% of our imports of goods to live on at the moment, as well as the historical significance of the port of Beirut and our connection to Europe and to Asia and to the rest of the world. And beyond the immediate damage, we have to think of the economic impact. This blast hit some of the most thriving businesses and entertainment areas of Beirut and now those businesses will be shut. So we have to think about the people who own and work in these businesses. How will they now make ends meet? For some of them, they've lost both their homes and their businesses. And we have to especially think of the most vulnerable populations in Lebanon. These are refugees and migrant workers. Somewhere between a quarter and third of Lebanon's population are refugees. And there are hundreds of thousands of migrant workers. These are often in the most low paying and dangerous jobs. And so many are already suffering as the first to feel the effects of the economic crisis that was already growing in the past six months before this explosion even happened. Yeah. And I really need to highlight especially the situation of foreign domestic workers. They exist in Lebanon and they also exist in the Middle East. And it's because of an exploitative system called the kafala system, which organizations such as Egna Legna and This Is Lebanon are now working to abolish. Thank you for that. And of course, there are so many organizations working on the ground, Agna Legna that you mentioned. And also there are other vulnerable communities like refugee communities. Lebanon has one of the highest per capita rates of refugees in the world. What are some other ways that people can help out with relief as we as we close this conversation? Of course, in close to 50 years of war, you know, we've never seen anything like this. Close, like as you said, close to 300,000 people were homeless in 10 seconds. The Sursa Museum, which is our heritage neighborhoods, were, you know, they, 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 they survived the war and in 10 seconds completely disappeared. If you want to support Lebanese people, I would urge you to support Lebanese run and Lebanese led organization, whether they are international or on the ground. Organizations such as Impact Lebanon, Seal for Lebanon, or Slow Factory Foundation, which is our foundation that is launching a fund called the Super Fund for Beirut, providing grants to individuals who are rebuilding their businesses and working at the intersection of human rights and environmental justice. Please donate, please learn more. Thank you, Celine, so much for being a part of this conversation. We're gonna have to have you on again. Um, and my heart goes out to you and your family and your community. Thank you, thank you, Mesa. Welcome back to the conversation on TYT. Our next guest 
I met at not a friend's giving, but a mom's giving party back in November. And she introduced herself to me as a science communicator. I did not know how dire and necessary such a job was until March 2020. <laughs> Who we have on next is science communication lead Jessica Malati Riviera. Thank you for coming on. She's been doing such a phenomenal public service on her Instagram page. Please check it out. She's answering people's questions all day, every day, dispelling myths and a lot of information that's been circulating. Um, I want to start out by asking what is a science communicator and why we need one in this moment? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have told you either back in November why we would need this at such a severe degree. But, you know, a science communicator is often a trained scientist who's also been trained in translating science. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes for our industry is that the science isn't complete until it's communicated. It's one thing to have science exist in a lab, in a university, but until that's spent, until the time that is spent to translate it, deconstruct it and make sure that it's accessible to the wide audience, it's not really useful. So I'm here to kind of bridge the gap between the science community and lay people, especially in a global pandemic where there is so much information. Yeah, and you're doing this as a science communication lead for the COVID tracking project. In this project and through this process, what are some of the um, really pervasive misinformation campaigns that you've seen? And I'm also curious why it hit the US so significantly. We have um, many documentaries like the pandemic that have gained so much steam and things that are of the same vein. Why is it that this is happening pretty um, substantially in the US? Yeah, I mean, before COVID-19 emerged, I had been working as a scientist a number of years, which is riddled with misinformation and conspiracy theories. So debunking claims and translating science has been something I've been doing for a while. And in our space, I mean, in infectious diseases, misinformation is almost a natural byproduct that happens because people get so panicked. So in, in, in epidemiology, there's a term called infodemiology, where there is an infodemic that happens in tandem with a epidemic or a pandemic. And that's because people panic. They freak out about data. They want to find a silver bullet treatment. They want to stop being inconvenienced by whatever's happening. And so they come up with, you know, conspiracy theories or they believe quacks who just spread out, you know, really baseless science because it creates division or it creates, you know, hype about something that is not really legitimate. So, you know, my work is mainly right now on Instagram personal because I know so many people who are misled by misinformation. And I'm doing a service to my community and my friends, which has grown a lot on Instagram to make sure that people are understanding what the true science is and what the real data is. Our work at the COVID tracking project is unbiased, pure data, extracting it from states, putting it in a place where everybody can see it because that currently doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah, and we know the President of the United States can't read data or graphs. So thank you for doing that work. We also know that within a country that has 5 million cases and at this point 168,000 plus deaths, that within this maelstrom, we are reopening schools. Right. And in some of the most significantly hit populations 
in the US. Can you explain what's happening? What's behind this logic and what other trends you've seen because of the reopening of schools? Yeah, I mean, it's quite concerning, especially because, you know, if you remember back in the spring, we closed schools early because of how the data was trending. And that was before it got really, really bad. And now we are in the fall, something that we were sounding the alarms to several months ago that we need to get this pandemic under control in order to send students and teachers and administrators back into school buildings. What's happened is we've let the pandemic kind of slip between our fingers in many ways with regard to testing, with regard to mask mandates. And with regard to how we're handling businesses and schools reopening. Right now, the disease is not under control. And if the disease is not under control outside of school buildings, it's gonna be really difficult to make sure that that does not translate inside buildings. So we are, you know, not no two schools are the same, no two states are the same. However, unless we stop and slow community transmission, make sure that the number of tests that are coming back positive are not growing. Thinking about schools just opening without any restrictions. Yeah, we definitely had a very different approach than many other countries. I want to talk about that in a second. I read a recent Atlantic article where 100 health professionals were interviewed, and basically the conclusion was what we have on our hands was not only predictable, it was preventable. And countries like New Zealand, Vietnam, even Italy is now controlling what was a massive surge back in the early spring. Um, what, what was preventable, what was predictable, and how can you compare it to other countries' responses? Everything was preventable, almost everything was predictable. I'm, and that's what's heartbreaking. You know, I. In my degree was in emerging infectious diseases. In many ways, I worked as a predictor of pandemics with a disease surveillance team at Georgetown. And we tried to track indicators and warnings of this. And this was funded by the US government because the US government was keen to know if there were gonna be biological threats naturally occurring or not that could turn into pandemics or outbreaks. And we defunded public health. We systematically have defunded public health. We have deprioritized the importance of this field of science. And it put us extremely vulnerable in the face of an a novel and emerging virus. Now, we also kind of messed up when it came to science communication. I mean, the messaging behind masks was very inconsistent. We said no in the beginning, and now we're saying yes, that creates distrust. Then with regard to testing, we said we're gonna have a lot of testing and we're dealing with infrastructure that can't maintain it. So, you know, there's also a sense of American individualism that is driving a lot of the reluctance to kind of move as a community to respond to this disease. And I think that's one thing that is really difficult to tackle in science communication. Telling people to wear a mask for others, telling people to get a vaccine for others doesn't sit well with a lot of people. And I think that that's something that is very different from our culture than other cultures, even in Europe. I mean, there are studies pre-pandemic about vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax sentiments that are uniquely you know, embedded here in our culture, which is a real big problem. You know, even with regard to contact tracing, contact tracing worked beautifully in a number of Southeast Asian countries where that kind of invasion of privacy, for lack of better terms, was not uncommon or not as much of an inconvenience as it was portrayed here in the media. It turned into a extremely political debate about who can talk to me, who can contact me, and it just created so many vulnerabilities. Yeah. I, I really interested in this point you're making about 
how the culture of American individualism is affecting how we're treating the virus, we're responding to it, whether or not it feels like an infringement in our rights and why we're not investing in caring for others. I just wanna give people some of the numbers here around Vietnam and New Zealand so that they can understand that it, we could have gone another way. So Vietnam is a population of 97 million people. They had 866 cases, folks, 17 deaths total. Yeah. New Zealand went 100 days without, 104 days, without the transmission of a case. And recently they had four cases and they just went into severe lockdown. And that's a population of 4.8 million. By contrast, we have, as we said, 5 million cases and so many, so many people that have died. What do you think is gonna be the direction and the future of this disease in the US? You know, it's. I will say it's really difficult to compare countries, especially ones that have very different populations. Ours is a huge country, so in many ways we function like 50 different countries because of our states. And that's part of the problem. We had 50 different responses to a disease in a, in a country. And what needs to change is a more concerted effort to respond to this disease from the top down, where we're making sure that people are absolutely wearing masks, that businesses that are essential are open, but the non-essential businesses remain either with strict guidelines or closed. And that we consider supporting our educational system by making sure that teachers and People who work in schools have paid sick leave and that we think about ways to make sure that every kid can have access to education without fear of getting infected from a very dangerous virus. Those things need to change, otherwise we're gonna be in this holding pattern until we have a vaccine or further. Yeah, yeah, and I also after reading all these articles about the approach that New Zealand Prime Minister is taking towards elimination and Vietnam really putting an emphasis around controlling how the population moves, which might be a nightmare here. Um, it did convince me to be, um, as somebody who is really concerned about the government surveilling and invading our rights, I was convinced actually that I would be fine and okay in terms of being able to care for our children, our next generation and our elderly generation to be able to momentarily give up some of those notions of rights, wearing a mask, um, being part of contact tracing. And I also wanna thank you so much, as I said, for the public service that you provide. And for folks who wanna continue to learn from Jessica, who is so clear and just so generous about donating her time. Please, please, please follow her on Instagram. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks for having me.